want to continue our way uh, gnawing through Nehemiah this morning. So if you'll find your way to somewhere in the vicinity of Nehemiah 11, 12, and 13, I'll appreciate it. One of the reasons we are slightly modifying, uh, modifying the order of our service this morning is because of something that you remember we came across in Nehemiah chapter 9 on that great day of uh, renewal of mourning and fasting and renewal. We're told that the people read from the book of the law for a fourth of the day, and then they confessed and worshiped the Lord for a fourth of the day. I think that order is significant. They first uh, opened the scriptures, these great truths of God to us about life, that explain to us the nature of life and how it can be lived successfully. And then out of their response to what they discovered in the Scriptures, they confessed because the Scriptures pointed out to them their weakness and sinfulness. And then they worshipped Him because of His forgiveness and His grace and His faithfulness to the people. And we want to uh, duplicate that order this morning. First, uh, read from the book of the law of God. Open up its truths, and then in response to what we discover about God as He speaks to us, to spend some time at the close of our service today in confession and in uh, worship. Politics has been called the art of compromise, and it's important that we have statesmen in our society who are uh, able to work with opposing parties and enable each of them to make concessions to find some uh, middle ground so that a consensus can be established and we can move forward. And it's important that there be people in the body of Christ to do the same thing that are enabled to, who are, who are able to make peace. Uh, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It's a noble thing to intervene with two parties which are in hostility with each other. And by appealing to them, persuading them to yield their rights and uh, to make concessions to one another to establish peace where there has been conflict. And so compromise in the right sense is a very good thing. And that the scriptures are very clear that there is a sort of compromise which always ought to be avoided. And that is the compromise of righteousness or purity. The way James put it in James 3 is that the wisdom which comes from above is first pure and then peaceable. Never the other way around. The wisdom from above never pursues peace at the expense of purity. That's the one area where we never compromise in our own walk with God and in our own uh, righteousness. I think we'll discover as we come to Nehemiah 13 this morning that uh, the people of God in Nehemiah's time made compromises They in three different areas of life. Nehemiah found them in compromising positions and had to step in to, to take action. And the intriguing thing to me about the compromises that the sons of Israel made in that day is that they are the same compromises that we are tempted and prone to make today. So I think as we look at the way in which they compromised their walk with God and how Nehemiah dealt with that, we will gain some help for ourselves. We need to cover a little background, first of all, in Nehemiah chapters 11 and 12 to set the stage for chapter 13. Nehemiah has come to the uh, conclusion of the work that he had to do with the nation of Israel. The wall had been completed, and now as Nehemiah gets to the end of his initial task, there are four things that he still needed to do. The first was to repopulate the city of Jerusalem. It was a beautifully fortified city. The wall had been completed. But the city had been unoccupied for about 140 years. And all during that time, rubble had accumulated and the streets were cluttered with debris. And very few people actually lived in the city. So it was beautifully fortified, but nobody lived there. So Nehemiah set about the task of populating the city of Jerusalem. Some people volunteered, we're told, in chapter 11. Uh, others had to be drafted. They established the uh, first uh, state lottery. And if you won, you lost. If your name was drawn, then you were uh, asked, in fact, required to move to Jerusalem and repopulate the city. You realize the hardship that would have involved, uh, been involved for a number of the people. They had built uh, farmhouses and established homesteads, and it would have involved considerable sacrifice to pack up their families, lock, stock, and barrel, and move them from the suburbs from whence they had been commuting to work on the wall to actually live permanently in Jerusalem. But Nehemiah took care of that in chapter 11. 
Uh, the second thing he wanted to take care of was to dedicate the wall, and that we find recorded for us in chapter 12. Wall was a substantial affair. was uh, broad enough at the top that people could actually walk around it. So Nehemiah had everybody climb up ladders and hop on the wall. And they set out in two different directions, two great choirs of priests and Levites with cymbals and trumpets and harps and so forth. And they marched around the wall that had recently been completed in opposite directions and met at the temple and had a great service of worship, offered many sacrifices, and many songs of praise and joy. We see that described in verse 43 of chapter 12, the kind of festival that they had. On that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. Even the women and the children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. Even in the outlying villages, you could hear the noise of this celebration as the people had their city back and celebrated. The third thing that Nehemiah needed to do was to implement some of the agreements that they'd made in chapter 10. As uh, Terry uh, discussed with us last week, they had pledged themselves in writing not to neglect the house of God. And what they meant by that was to once again be collecting the tithes, the 10% kind of tax that was levied on all of the produce that they produced. And this went into storehouses in the temple precincts and then was doled out to the priests and Levites. And they lived off of these tithes. That's how they got their uh, groceries and stocked their larders. And this freed them up from having to work with their own hands so they could devote their full energies to the work of the temple. So on the same day they have the celebration, Nehemiah appointed various men in the last paragraph in chapter 12 to undertake this responsibility to collect these tithes and then dispense them to the priests and Levites. The fourth thing in the first paragraph in chapter 13 was to implement another of the commitments they'd made in chapter 10, and that was to separate foreigners from their midst on that day, chapter 13, verse 1, On that day they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, parenthetically, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So it came about that when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. You remember uh, this story, of course. The Israelites had marched uh, uh, across the wilderness and were now in the Transjordan area. And in order to get to Canaan, they needed to pass through the lands of Ammon and Moab. Now, the Ammonites and the Moabites were related to Israel by blood. They were descendants of Lot. Ammon and Moab were sons of Lot. And so the Lord gave them instructions not to harm the Ammonites or Moabites because they were their brothers. So they requested safe passage, provisions for the journey through their land. The Ammonites and Moabites, however, were suspicious. And instead of granting them this provision, they hired Balaam, who was a prophet, who evidently would hire his services out to the highest uh, bidder, to pronounce a curse on the uh, Israelites. And Balaam, of course, as you remember, set out to do that when God's uh, better business bureau uh, interrupted him on uh, route and uh, rebuked him. And uh, Balaam wound up giving a succession of blessings instead of cursings. This, of course, got the Ammonites kind of steamed up uh, as they had put good money into this project and it was being wasted. But Balaam did have a suggestion for them. He suggested that they use their women, their Ammonite and Moabite women, to seduce the Israelites. This would be a great way of throwing a monkey wrench into the plans. And so they followed that piece of advice in Numbers 25. And a plague began to sweep across Israel that wasn't checked until uh, Phinehas, who was the son of Aaron, uh, saw an Israelite male and an Ammonite uh, woman or Moabite woman actually having sexual intercourse in the temple precincts themselves. And in a fit of righteous rage, he grabbed a spear and he ran both of them through, pinned them to the ground, putting both of them to death. And that act was responsible for stopping this plague, which was threatening the entire nation of Israel. But at any rate, God realized in that instance that the Ammonites and Moabites had gone on record, both in their hiring of Balaam and then ignoring his words of blessing, and then resorting to this tactic of uh, seduction to uh, resist God's people, that they were 
had permanently placed themselves on record as people who opposed the things of God. And so God passed a law that from that point forward, no Ammonites or Moabites would be allowed into the assembly of Israel because of the corrupting influence that they would have on the spiritual life of the people. Now, we have decided to apply this particular paragraph in our own fellowship. So next Sunday, the ushers will be stationed at the door, and you'll be asked to show an ID card. And if you're Ammonite or Moabite, you're out of here. You're gone. So... Just be prepared for that next week. Actually, I do think there is a point of application from this paragraph, but I want to hang on to it for just a few minutes until we come to a later paragraph in this chapter. Now, when Nehemiah had taken care of these four things, repopulating the city, dedicating the wall, uh, collecting the tithes, and uh, excluding the Ammonites from Israel, he felt his job as governor basically was completed. Now, we see in verse 6 that he stayed for about another 12 years. Uh, Pick up in the middle of verse 6. In the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, uh, Artaxerxes was king of Persia, actually, but the Persians had displaced the Babylonians and called themselves the king of Babylon. 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. Nehemiah came to Judah in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. So Nehemiah served as governor of Judah for these 12 years. In his first year, he made all of these reforms, rebuilt the wall, instituted the things we've just talked about. And then for 12 years, the operation ran evidently quite smoothly. After that period of time, Artaxerxes wanted him to come back and again serve as cupbearer. It's possible one of Artaxerxes, uh, or one of Nehemiah's successors as cupbearer, had intercepted a mickey intended for the king and needed to be replaced in his job. But at any rate, Nehemiah returned to Susa to again be the cupbearer for the king. And he was gone for a substantial period of time, where just the phrase that Nehemiah uses in verse 6 is, after some time, I asked leave from the king. We don't know how long that period of time was, but we find out later in the chapter, that enough time had elapsed in Nehemiah's absence for Israelite men to once again marry Ammonites and Moabites and Ashdodites, Philistines, and raise up children who could not speak the language of Judah. So you have to assume that at least uh, 10 to 12 years had passed. Nehemiah had been gone for at least that amount of time for all of this to take place. So let's assume that Nehemiah was gone for a period of 10 to 12 years. Now, when uh, he returned, he discovered uh, the truth that when the cat's away, the mice will play, and that the Israelites had suffered a serious uh, spiritual decline uh, in his absence. And what this teaches us, by the way, is uh, it reinforces the importance of, of spiritual leadership in the life of God's people, that Uh, Over and over again, the scriptures indicate that the quality of the spiritual life of God's people is determined by the quality of the spiritual life of its leadership. That rarely will you ever see the quality of the spiritual life of the people exceed the spiritual life of the leadership. And that's why we as a staff and as elders covet your prayers for our task in providing shepherding oversight for this fellowship, that we would walk in Nehemiah's footsteps and set a pattern for this fellowship of righteousness and integrity and purity. So please continue to pray for us in that respect. But at any rate, when Nehemiah returns, he discovers that the sons of Israel had slipped back into serious compromise in three different areas. And I want to look at those with you this morning. The first area we'll see where they had slipped into compromise was in dealing with the house of God. Secondly, they'd compromised in the area of business And third, they had compromised in the area of relationships. So let's look, first of all, at their compromise in the house of God in verses 4 through 9. Now, prior to this, in verse 4, that would be prior to this whole dedication ceremony dealing with the wall. Prior to this, Eliashib, the high priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, was related to Tobiah. Literally, it just says that he was close or near to Tobiah. And I take it that that simply means that Eliashib, the high priest, was a good friend of Tobias. And he was a good friend of Tobias before Nehemiah ever showed up. Prior to this, prior to all of the events that we have discussed in Nehemiah, 
Eliashib and Tobiah were, were good buddies, went fishing together and so forth. And uh, Tobiah, as you remember, along with Sanballat, whom we also run into a little bit later, were uh, Nehemiah's chief uh, enemies. They were his arch rivals in this business of rebuilding the city of God. And it turns out that Eliashib was a very close friend of one of Nehemiah's arch enemies. Now, I suggest, as the NIV does, that we put a period at the end of verse 4, that Eliashib the high priest was close to Tobiah even before Nehemiah showed up. And as long as Nehemiah was around, there was very little that Eliashib could do to further this friendship. However, in verse 5, when Nehemiah left for Susa, he, that is Eliashib, prepared a large room for him where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. So Eliashib removed these supplies, the frankincense, grain offerings, wine, and so forth, that was stored there for the priests and Levites, removed those from these storerooms, and allowed Tobiah, the enemy of God's people, to use that room as a storeroom, kind of his personal attic or warehouse right in the temple of God. And he stored there his own household goods. Then Nehemiah explains, this happened in his absence. During all this time I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem, and learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. Nehemiah's response in verse 8, It was very displeasing to me, so I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Just pitched the couch and the stereo and the black and white TV out on the street. Then I gave an order, and they cleansed the rooms. And I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. Nehemiah was upset because there were things that were stored in the house of God that did not belong there. And the people had compromised in this area. They had allowed the courts of the house of God, the very temple of God, the place where God dwelt, they had allowed rooms in that building, the temple of God, to be a storeroom for the enemies of God's people. They had allowed things to take up residence in the temple of God that did not belong there, that had no business being there. I think we, as contemporary Christians, are in danger in a couple of areas, at least, of making the same mistake. More than two, but two that come to my mind in particular. Uh, we know from the pages of the New Testament that God no longer lives in buildings. Uh, buildings are not sanctuaries for the living God. And under the terms of the New Covenant, people are the temple of the living God. God no longer dwells in buildings. He lives in people. You and I individually are the temples of God. And we as the body of Christ, the church of Christ, we are the temple. I think the danger that Nehemiah points us to here is the danger of allowing our temples, our own individual lives, or the body of Christ, to be a storehouse for attitudes and values and actions that simply have no business in God's temple, that don't belong there, and need to be pitched out onto the street. I took a number of interns with me, as well as some staff members, down to... Uh, conference in Anaheim two weeks ago, a congress on biblical exposition. One of the speakers there was a man by the name of Oz Guinness, and he pointed my attention to, t I think, two of these worldly attitudes that the church is consistently in danger of storing up in the temple. The first one he pointed to is materialism. Uh, that is our penchant to think that things will satisfy us. And that God's purpose in life is to make us healthy and wealthy. That his uh, goal in life is to make us comfortable. And we pursue possessions under the deception that they will satisfy us. But they, but they in fact, uh, are empty. But we constantly are tempted to buy into the deception that more is better. Uh, but it's empty. It's futile, as the scriptures tell us. A friend of mine de defines materialism as uh, buying things that we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't even like. And it strikes me as, uh, and it was true to life, 
my wife and I have some good friends, and we're very concerned about them at this stage because they're uh, they're just kind of in a uh, acquisition uh, mode, and they're borrowing far beyond their means in order to have more toys and uh, nicer automobiles and bigger uh, places to live and nicer places to live. And are stretching themselves uh, very thin, committing the wife to work with young children at home and so forth. And we see some of the, the damage that this can do in the life of a family who is given in to this temptation to materialism. Uh, Os Guinness pointed out that the, this whole prosperity gospel, which is so widely taught in uh, America, uh, would be absolutely absurd in every third world country. That... Uh, it cannot be the biblical message that God's plan is to make us healthy and wealthy because it's nonsense in 95% of the populated world. And yet we've fallen prey to this same kind of deception. Well, how can we tell if we are uh, materialistic, if we've given in, we've allowed this attitude to be stored up in our temples? Well, I think the simple test is the test, uh, the envy test or the jealousy test, the resentment test. If you... Uh, experience a pang of envy when you see someone else's drapes or furniture or automobiles or ski mobiles or uh, wardrobes or toys or vacations. It's a sure sign that we've given in to this temptation to think that if only I had that, life would be so much fuller and so much richer and I would be so much happier if only I had that. But that's a lie. And that attitude has no business in the household of God. Now, the second thing that Guinness pointed out that the contemporary church is in danger of compromise in is of exchanging the gospel of God for the political program of men. He pointed out that in the 60s, the liberal church, the mainline church, made what we consider uh, today almost universally to be a great mistake. They allowed themselves to be co-opted by a uh, liberal political philosophy. And their aims became identical with liberal political aims. And in the eyes of the world, there was no difference. There was no distinction between them. And Guinness pointed out that we're in the same danger of making the mistake in the other direction in our time. For the conservative church to become simply a tool in the hands of political figures who find us a willing uh, constituency if they will only uh, spin us the right line, they will gain our allegiance and there's a temptation on our part to substitute the proclamation of the gospel for political solutions. But the scriptures are clear that these political solutions are empty. They will never fix anything. They don't last. The real solutions to life do not lie in legislation or education or political action. But in the proclamation of the gospel, the gospel is the only thing that sets people free from bondage to sin to bad habits to uh, evil habit patterns that break up families and destroy lives. And see, that's the message that we have. And it would be a tragedy for us to forsake the proclamation of this message in our society when that is the missing note that is so desperately needed. Uh, we need to remember as a, as a church, as a body of Christ, that we have not been called to make men conservative. We've been called to make men Christ-like. We haven't been called to make men Republicans. We've been called to make them righteous. And we must never forget that that is our goal and not allow a confusion in this area. It sends a very mixed signal to the world of what the gospel is all about if they hear us proclaiming both messages. Now, this led to neglect in another area of the life of the body. We see in verses 10 to 14, I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. That is because the storerooms were being used for uh, Tobiah's household goods. And giving had evidently fallen off. The portions of the Levites had not been given them, so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away each to his own field. The verb gone away there is literally fled, that is, for their own survival. They had been forced to go back to work in the fields to provide for their own needs. The Levites and the singers were designed to be set aside full-time to be involved in the service of the temple. And when the tithing dried up, when the contributions of grain and so forth uh, dried up, there was no supply for them, and so they were forced to work with their own hands to meet their own needs. And consequently, the ministry of the temple suffered. So, verse 11, I reprimanded the officials, I contended with them, it's a strong word, and said... 
Why is the house of God forsaken or abandoned? Why have you ignored it? Why have you abandoned it, neglected it? Then I gathered them together, that is, the priests and Levites and singers, and restored them to their posts. All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. These were their main agricultural products. And 10%, the word tithe literally means a tenth. The Israelites, as a form of tax, really, were required to bring in a tenth of the wheat that they harvested, 10% of the recent vintage wine that they produced, and 10% of the uh, freshly produced olive oil that they produced in their fields into these storehouses in the temple. And in charge of the storehouses, I appointed Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites. And in addition to them was Hanan the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable or trustworthy, dependable, faithful, and it was their task to distribute to their kinsmen. Nehemiah realized the potential for corruption and graft when there was this much provision at their disposal. could be sold on the black market. The change could have been pocketed. So it was important to have very faithful men in charge of the storehouse. Then he says in verse 14, Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds, deeds which I have performed for the house of my God and its services. Okay, what is the relevance of a paragraph like this uh, to us? We know from the pages of the New Testament that uh, the distinction between clergy and laity has been abolished in Christ, that all of us are ministers of the gospel, uh, that all of us have been given gifts to be involved in ministry. Each of us have been given certain abilities which no one else possesses to minister to people in ways that are unique. Uh, you can minister to people that members of the pastoral staff could never reach, and you've been gifted by God to do that. We know that tithing is never reproduced as a standard in the uh, New Testament. The standard in the New Testament is not a fixed percentage, but the voluntary, willing contribution uh, of the heart. So what is the parallel between something like this, where the Levites were forced to go back uh, to work? Well, I do think that in the New Testament, even though all of us are ministering priests, every one of us, priesthood of all believers, there are certain priests that the New Testament indicates uh, are to be set aside for the gospel ministry and be uh, set aside from working with their own hands so that they can invest all of their energies and time into studying and teaching the scriptures and shepherding God's people. Now, I think the, uh, the relevance of a passage like this is that as I look around many churches, and I'm very grateful that Cole is uh, not among them, I see that uh, pastors characteristically, uh, those men that have been set aside by God for the full-time work of servicing God's temple, are often shortchanged in, in compensation. Now, our staff here are extremely grateful. I want to make it clear that Cole is the exception in this regard. And we are all extremely grateful for how you as a fellowship and as elders have taken, have taken care of us. You do consider us uh, worthy of our hire. But I see that as a great exception among many of the churches. The attitude among the leadership of many churches, the lay leadership, seems to be, uh, uh, Lord, you keep him humble and, and we'll keep him poor. And... Uh, try to go the bargain basement route and see what the minimum they have to expend to keep a satisfactory uh, pastor uh, on hand. But it's a tragedy. Uh, Jesus said that the laborer is worthy uh, of his hire. I know my own father was in the full-time ministry for 11 years, and one of the reasons that forced him out of the ministry is he simply couldn't support a family of four on the income that, uh, that he received. So I would encourage you, you may not be in a position now to have any influence over a decision like this in a, in a fellowship, but if you are ever in a fellowship where this issue comes up, please remember the Lord's words that the laborer is worthy of his hire. It's a great shame when those that have been set aside for the full-time gospel ministry have to go back to their own fields to supply their own needs with their hands. The temple of God will suffer. The house of God will suffer as a result. And that's the first area of compromise that Nehemiah uh, recognized, compromise in dealing with the house of God. Now, secondly, he saw that the people of Israel had compromised in business. We find this in verses 15 through 22. In those days I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath. Wine presses were just presses that were set up, the grapes were loaded in, and they would actually tread them. 
And Nehemiah probably recognized this was going on because he saw people on the Sabbath walking into Jerusalem with purple feet, so he knew that this was going on. And bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys, as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, and they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day and set up kind of a farmer's market there on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them. A word means to protest, to warn, to exhort solemnly. I admonished them on the day they sold food. Also in verse 16, men of Tyre were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise. They were the great fishermen of that era. And the fish gate in Jerusalem was where they would bring their fish from the Mediterranean and sell them. And these Tyrians sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even, he says, in Jerusalem, the holy city. Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah, that is, the men who could do something about it, the Jerusalem Chamber of Commerce. I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not our fathers do the same so that our God brought on us and on this city all this trouble or misery or distress? Yet you, and that's emphatic, you are adding to the wrath. The word wrath means burning anger. You are adding to the burning anger of God on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Scriptures were very clear, the law of Moses was very clear, that the Sabbath was to be a day of rest. That's what the word Sabbath means. It means rest. And so every Jewish businessman was required by the Scriptures to take one day off a week. From Friday night at sundown, when the Sabbath started, to Saturday night at sundown, he was forbidden to do any work. They didn't even go to church. They just stayed home and rested with their families and played Scrabble and watched TV and had a day of R&R that was mandated by the law. What Nehemiah realized is these men had ignored that explicit provision of the law. And instead of using the Sabbath as a day to spend with their families and rest and relaxation, they used it as another day of commerce. So these businessmen were working seven days a week. Now why would they do that? Well, there's obviously uh, one and only one reason. It increased the profit margin. You work seven days a week, you make more money than you do working six days a week. So these men were willing to compromise in the area of business. They were willing to compromise righteousness and obedience for the sake of the bottom line. Now, Nehemiah, in verse 19, did something about it. It came about that just as it grew dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, that would be Friday evening at dusk, I commanded that the doors should be shut and that they should not open them until after the Sabbath. So no, then I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load should enter on the Sabbath day. Nobody goes in, nobody goes out. Once or twice, the traders and merchants of every kind of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem. I thought, well, I'm sure they got the gates shut at night, but they'll open them in the morning. We'll go in and set up just like we did before. And then I warned them, same word we had in verse 15 that's translated admonished, I warned them, I exhorted them solemnly, I protested and said to them, Why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will use force against you. Literally, I will send a hand against you. The living Bible, I will pull your lips off. <laughs> he was serious about this. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath, understandably. And I commanded in verse 22 the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. For this also remember me, O oh my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of thy loving kindness. I think there are many uh, modern day believers who are tempted, maybe some of us in this room, who are tempted to compromise righteousness in the area of business, uh, who may be in practice, although we wouldn't uh, do so in theory, may be in practice placing our families and our walk with God uh, second to our commitment to business. Uh, we know that if we work harder and longer hours, it means more profits, means more chance for promotion. And yet, while we do that, our families may well be suffering. And that's the kind of compromise that Nehemiah is drawing our attention to here. Uh, 
And that's the question I would put to each of you in this room this morning. Are you compromising, are you sacrificing the needs of your family, your children, and your wife for the sake of the bottom line? That's what Nehemiah is challenging us with. I have a good friend who uh, was very busy, self-employed, had a very busy uh, business. And uh, it required a lot of his time, great number of hours. And one morning he was uh, leaving, and his daughter came to kiss him goodbye. And he said to his daughter, uh, Honey, uh, I'm going to work. I have to leave to go to work. And she said very brightly, That's okay, Daddy. I forgive you. And uh, it was rather striking to him, you know, that his daughter realized that his commitment to his job was such that it really required forgiveness on the part of his family. Uh, Ray Kroc was interviewed once by the uh, New York Times. He's the founder of the McDonald's hamburger chain. And this... uh, reporter for the New York Times asked him what he believed in. And Ray Kroc said, what I believe in is I believe in God, I believe in my family, and I believe in McDonald's hamburgers. And then when I get to the office, I reverse the order. And uh, this was the explanation, he said, for the success of that, uh, that enterprise. Now, as Terry mentioned last week, our Guideline priorities, that is the thing, or guidepost priorities, the ones that we would actually write down on paper, are usually impeccable. They're flawless. We have everything in the right order. But the important thing is what our reflector priorities are. That is, what does our actual lifestyle reflect? Is there some evidence in my lifestyle and the decisions that I make with my discretionary time, with my evenings, with my weekends? Is there some evidence in that, in, in those times, that I am placing my family and God before my business. A man by the name of Jack Eckerd is the founder of the Eckerd uh, drugstore chain. And at this COBE conference, uh, Chuck Colson told us a story uh, about him. Uh, he became a believer and became concerned because uh, Eckerd sold a penthouse and Playboy there at the checkout stands. And uh, so we're distributing on a nationwide basis uh, pornography and making it uh, available to the general public. And he became concerned about this and felt the Lord was dealing with him on this area. So one day, one afternoon, he called the president of his company and said, Okay, that is it. No more penthouse, no more Playboy. I want him pulled off the uh, check stands, and that's it. And the president protests, and he says, Now, whoa, says, uh, hold on a minute. Don't you realize that we made $3 million off of those magazines last year? And Eckert stopped for a minute and says, uh, Okay, let me sleep on it. So he went home and slept on it prayed about it, thought about it some more. And the next morning, he called his president and and reaffirmed the same decision that he had made. They weren't going to purvey uh, pornography any longer, despite the $3 million price tag. And Colson called him later and said, Now, Jack, let me get this clear. You did this out of your commitment to Jesus Christ? And he said, Of course I did. Why else would anybody give away $3 million? They had a good point. But there was a man that had learned that God and righteousness comes before prophets and the bottom line. And that's a question I would put uh, to each of you this morning to ask yourself in the quiet of your own hearts, is there any area in your business life where you recognize that you've been compromising righteousness or integrity? Have you been cutting corners? Have you been dealing uh, unethically, perhaps even illegally, doing anything shady? or underhanded anything that you would be embarrassed to have come to the attention of the Lord. If so, then uh, shut the gates and uh, lock the doors and and cut it out before uh, Nehemiah has to come and use force against you. Now, in verse 23, Nehemiah discovered the third area of compromise, not only in the house of God, not only in business, but also in personal relationships he saw compromise. In those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, that was a Philistine city, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but instead the language of his own people. I think what Nehemiah was concerned about here was the cultural assimilation through this intermarriage. Their children were becoming not like the sons of God, but like the sons of Ashdod. And it was reflected in their language. So, verse 25, I contended with them. Same word that's translated reprimanded in verse 11 and reprimanded in verse 17. I contended with them. I reprimanded them and cursed them. Notice that. 
ripped off a good round oath. And check this out. I struck them, some of them, and pulled out their hair. Literally, that verb means to make smooth or to make bald. So he grabbed these Jewish males by the hair and started yanking out tufts of hair because of this. I see some of you may have been present that day as I look around. (laughs) And Nehemiah says, I made them swear by God. Now I want you to picture that. He's got this guy by the hair. He says, okay, I'll do whatever you say. Just let go of my hair. And I'll help them. Okay, you swear by... Okay, yes, I will. So he made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Obviously, in this culture, marriages were arranged by the parents, and so this was where the commitment uh, needed to be made. Now, this is why, Nehemiah says in verse 26, I'm so insistent about this. This is why I am making you bald over this issue. Did not Solomon, the king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him. No king like him. And he was loved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. See the point that Nehemiah is making? It says if if Solomon was led astray in this area by his intermarriage with foreign women... You guys don't have a chance. Uh, Solomon was the wisest man, we're told, that ever lived. He had more insight, more perceptiveness into what makes life work and what makes life fall apart than any man who ever lived. Uniquely gifted by God with insight, penetrating insight into life and uh, relationships. You just have to take a cursory reading through the book of Proverbs to discern this for yourself. And yet Solomon himself, wiser than anyone in this room, was led astray by these relationships with these non-believers. So he says in verse 27, Do we then hear about you that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God, by marrying foreign women? The verb that's translated acting unfaithfully there is often used in the Old Testament to refer to marital infidelity. It says you have become unfaithful to God, become an adulterer in your relationship with God by marrying foreign women. Even one of the sons of Joiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. So I drove him away from me. Eliashib was the high priest in Nehemiah's time. Uh, Joiada was the high priest who succeeded him. And this son that is referred to here in verse 28 would have been the high priest to succeed Joiada. And he himself had married one of the descendants of Sanballat the Horonite, who was most likely a Moabite. So even the high priestly family had violated this clear statement of Scripture. And so Nehemiah, no respecter of persons, drove even the grandson of the high priest away from his presence. He says in verse 29, Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood, that is, by allowing priests to intermarry with foreign women, and the covenant of the priesthood, and the Levites. Thus I purified them from everything foreign, that is, from all foreign wives, and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each in his task, and I arranged for the supply of wood at appointed times and for the first fruits. And for the third time in the chapter, Nehemiah says, Remember me, O my God, for good. Now, the third area, it seems to me, that Nehemiah is putting his finger on where compromise can take place in the life of the body, in the temple of God, is in the area of relationships. I think in particular the relevance of a paragraph like this is to those of you in this room who are single this morning. Now I have talked to a number of you, particularly some of the single women in our fellowship, and I know that the perception of many of you is that in the body of Christ in Boise the fields are not white unto harvest in this area. Uh, and in your perception, at least, most of the single men uh, look a lot like Herb. And uh, <laughs> the prospects do not seem to be that, that great. Uh, and yet what Nehemiah, I think, is drawing our attention to here is the great danger that relationships like this represent to the health of your walk with God. Uh, And I would encourage you to realize this morning that a relationship with a non-believer will almost 
always, I, I don't say always because I'm sure there is an exception somewhere in Ripley's, believe it or not, but almost always the dynamic that takes place when a believer is in a, a close relationship with a non-believer is that the Christian is the one who is drawn away from his loyalty and his allegiance to the Lord. Almost inevitably, the believer is the one who begins to make the compromises and begins to withdraw from the Lord out of his allegiance or her allegiance to this new partner in life. So I would challenge you as a single person this morning to to renew this commitment in your heart to marry only in the Lord because of the grave danger, no matter how persuasive and magnetic and kind and concerned and considerate the individual seems to be, the uh, chances are great that he will draw your heart away from the Lord. And also I think if you're in junior high or high school this morning or in college, I think it's important to evaluate every close friendship that you have, whether it's a friendship or a dating relationship, from this standpoint. What effect is this relationship having on my walk with God? Is my loyalty to this friend or to this girlfriend or to this boyfriend, is this loyalty drawing me away from the Lord? Can I tell that in my heart or in my actions I'm compromising in any way out of my commitment to this relationship? Well, if that's the case, then the lesson from Nehemiah is that it's time to begin withdrawing from that relationship and drawing back again close to the Lord. So these are the three areas that Nehemiah put his finger on. They had compromised with the house of God. They would compromised in business, and they had compromised in personal relationships. And Nehemiah single-handedly went about the business of setting these things right. I'm struck kind of by three things in closing that are... Uh, incidental details in this chapter that I want to comment on. One is Nehemiah's anger. You see him all the way through here throwing uh, Tobiah's household goods out on the street. Uh, Verse 11, reprimanded. Verse uh, 15, I admonished. Verse 17, I reprimanded. Verse 21, I warned. Verse 25, I contended. That repeatedly you see flashes of anger from Nehemiah. And it strikes me that we need to remember that it is appropriate for believers to be angry about sin, particularly when God's people know better. It's appropriate for us to be firm with people and uh, to reprimand them when they are clearly walking in disobedience. There's nothing noble about passivity and, uh, and uh, uh, kind of a peaceful, uh, calm-the-water spirit at that time. Uh, Jesus, we're told in Mark 3, 5, when the Pharisees refused to encourage him to heal that that, uh, crippled man on the Sabbath, he looked around at them with anger, it says, grieved at their hardness of heart. It wasn't self-righteous. He was grieved at the hardness and resistance and lack of compassion in their heart. And this made him angry. And it ought to make us angry as well. A second thing that strikes me is the number of times that Nehemiah says, Remember me, O Lord, uh, for good. He tells us in verse 14 that he his only basis for this is the, uh, or in verse uh, 22 it is, is God's compassion. He says, remember me for what I've done, Lord. But even then I realize that it's not good enough. I still need your compassion to be accepted by you. But it seems to me that the point of this is that Nehemiah is putting himself on record, telling us that his only concern was to please the Lord. And he wanted the Lord to know this, that I've done this for you, and I ask you, Lord, to remember me for this and to honor me for this. And you realize immediately that he wasn't making anybody else too happy in uh, this chapter. You know, half of the Israelites, he just cut their profit margin by 14.5%, and the other half were going in for hair weaves the next week. Uh, He wasn't making anybody happy. So he realized that unless he did this for the Lord, and unless the Lord was pleased, And he was sunk. So he says, remember me, Lord, for I have done this for you. His motive was to please the Lord. Now, the last thing that really impresses me in this chapter is that everything, everything that these Israelites did in chapter 13, they had pledged themselves in writing not to do in chapter 10. Everything. There's a mirror image of chapter 10. They had pledged themselves in writing in chapter 10. They'd signed it. They'd all affixed their seal to this, that we will obey all of the commands of the Scripture. We will exclude all foreigners from our fellowship. We will preserve the Sabbath day and keep it holy. We will not neglect the house of God. And yet in reverse order, they did everything. They neglected the house of God. And they did not preserve the Sabbath. And they intermarried with uh, with foreign women. 
And the lesson to me out of that is that it's a reminder to me and to all of us of the weakness of our own will and our own uh, willpower. No matter how sincere, no matter how honest, no matter how earnest our commitment to righteousness is, it's not enough that we inevitably will fail, we will disobey. And we need to remember that God alone has the strength uh, to impart to us, to enable us to be righteous people, to slowly and gradually, over a process of time, transform us into people who uh, are righteous. Uh, God alone has the strength and the power uh, for that. So if you feel like you've got your life under control in these areas, then I think it's time to heed Paul's uh, warning. Let him who stands... Take heed, lest he fall. If you are doing well in these areas, I commend you. But remember, you only stand by God's grace. If you've failed in these areas, remember, as Bill sang to us earlier, that with God there is forgiveness. That when we blow it, when we disobey clear statements and commands of Scripture, God is still a God of compassion and forgiveness. I'd like you to close, each of you, to close your eyes just for a moment. And I want to uh, briefly rethink this chapter with you. Just ask you to consider some of the implications in your own life and do business with God if you need to. First thing we talked about is compromise in our own temples. And I ask you to think about your own personal life as a temple. Is God putting His finger on anything in your life, this area, where, any area of your life where you have compromised your walk with God. You're tolerating actions or attitudes in your temple that have no business being there. If so, confess those and renounce them. Secondly, I'd like to ask you to consider is if you are making compromises in business, either in ethics, in the legality of what you're doing, or in the sacrifice that you are causing your family to make for your pursuit of profits or promotion. If you've compromised, ask God to forgive you for that and renounce it. And third, I'd like to ask each of you to scan your own personal relationships, single or married, and ask yourself, is there any relationship that I am involved in that is drawing me away from the Lord and if so confess that and resolve to deal with it and if you're here this morning and aware of your own failure in some of these areas I appeal to you now to lay hold of God's forgiveness remind yourself that he is a God of compassion and mercy Father, we ask you to search our hearts in light of this truth, to uh, reveal to us our own disobedience in any area, motivate us to do serious business with you this morning. We confess our uh, selfishness, our self-centeredness, our unrighteousness to you, and we ask you this morning to forgive us, extend to us your compassion, extend to us your strength and power to transform our lives. Amen.